I'm Stephen, I'm the pastor here, and I want to welcome you and invite you to open up your Bibles if you have them, uh, either on your phones or the heart version, uh, to Romans chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, that's all right. The verses we're going to be looking at are in your bulletin. Inside your bulletin is a place there to take notes. Um, we are... Um, we are in a series uh, talking about how God interrupts the stories of our lives. Um, and today we're going to look at some verses where the Apostle Paul, this guy whose life was radically transformed because of God, um, he talks about how we see the universe and the world that we live in. Okay, And he does this um, so that we, it will help us. He does this in a way that really helps us to think about how God and science fit together. Okay, and, and so when you think about that, um, there's a lot of people, when they think about sort of God and science, they, they have a couple of different ways that most people think. Some people think it's, it's faith versus science. Um, other people think it's the Bible versus science, which is just another way of saying the same thing. Um, most people think that if you bury yourself in the Bible, you have to bury your head in the sand. Like you can't be committed to both. Most people think that if you want to become an expert on this, and really understand who God is as he's revealed in the Bible, then you have to close your eyes, you have to close your mind to what science offers. And, and the Bible itself doesn't see it that way. Okay, the way the Bible sees it is, that, is this, God doesn't say one thing in the Bible and then say something else in creation. Okay, we're going to look at how God reveals himself and what God reveals in creation is not contradictory to what God reveals in the Bible. And so we're going to focus today on verses 19 and 20 in Romans chapter 1, but we're going to read verses 18 to 25 to catch the context. And so this is God's word. Um, let's listen to what he has to say. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, verses 19 and 20 in this passage speak to us about how we should think about the universe and the world. And so it speaks to and it informs how we ought to think about science. And so I want to just look at these two verses again um, and just highlight them. It says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Um, and so this is, uh, this is like a reality that God has revealed himself throughout creation. He's revealed himself in the things that he has made so that 
we would know him so that we would see his power and his divine nature and then have a relationship with him. And this is the design of God in what he made. All right? And so what this means is that there's a particular reason behind science. There is a, there's even a God-ordained design for science. Okay? God wants us to explore science uh, so that we would, really three things. There's three things that science is designed for by God. Um, he wants us to explore science so that we would, number one, know God better. Number two, exercise greater leadership. And number three, to honor and thank God. All right, so to know God better. The design of what God has made is intended so that we would see that God the creator is a glorious artist who made everything and reveals himself in everything. Like God wants you to look at what has been made. He wants you to look at the world and he wants you to see who he is and what he's like. And what we find is that he is an artist, that he has incredible power, that he is different from we are, and yet he has a love for beauty and color. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but God wants us to exercise greater leadership, that God made human beings to rule over the world and to lead the world. He wants us to invent new things. He wants us to keep the things that are running, running right. He wants us to fix and restore what's broken. God wants us to be maximizing human flourishing in all that we do. This is his design for creation. His design for us is that we would see him and study what he's made and understand who he is and understand how we can exercise greater leadership by using the things that are in the world, by caring for them, by stewarding them, and by making things that would promote human flourishing. And so inventions and um, and, and maintenance, you know, repar you know, reparations. I mean, it's, God wants us to see him in the world so that we would lead in ways that, um, that would cause more people to be able to be blessed and to flourish. Um, and then he wants us to honor and thank him for who he is. He wants us to live lives of thankfulness because of his amazing love and kindness, right? This is what it says. It says that, um, it says that the problem is that we haven't done this Right? It says that, um, that we were, they didn't honor him in verse 21. They didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. You know, God's design is that we would be grateful for who he is. What's powerful that I want you to know is that science can do all of these things. Science has the ability to reveal to us more about the creation, and in then, you know, which reveals us more about the creator. Um, God also, I mean, science can also show us new things, so we invent new stuff. Um, and, God, and, and science can lead us to a place where we see who we are, um, and then we reflect on what it must mean about our God. And so science can do these things. Science should do these things. Um, one author said this, everything that we see, everything that we observe, everything that we test in creation is smothered with God's fingerprints. Okay, that creation is smothered with the fingerprints of God. When we see the enormity of the universe, we see just how big and powerful God is. I mean, I've wondered that before, haven't you? Like, God, why did you make the world so big? Why did you make stuff that's out there that we will probably never, ever, ever even discover? Right? What's the purpose of that? 
There's, in some ways, there's so much what seems to be from a practical purpose. It seems so there's so much irrelevance in the universe. So God, why would you make something that is so big? Why would you make the universe so big? It seems like the design is that we would realize how big God is. God wants us to know just how beyond imagination he is, just how big he is. This is his eternal power, verse 20 says, um, his eternal power. You think about this. Um, and, and God is not like us. He's not just a more powerful version of us, but he has always been, right? God is uncreated. And so we see in a world where everything has been created and anything that we are standing on, anything that's on our clothing, anything that we're writing with, anything that we're wearing, anything that we're seeing, I mean, everything that we see here was created by something, right? Everything has an origin, but not God. Somehow in the mystery of who God is, that he has been, all, he's always been. I mean, he is, this is his divine nature, that God is God and not human. He's not like us. I think about the microscopic detail in the nucleus of an atom. I mean, that also shows us that God is a master craftsman, right? He's not just a brute oaf, okay? He's not just this God who like flings everything out there from some, maybe some big bang, maybe some other way. Like God isn't just this big giant oaf who flings stuff out there haphazardly and just sort of lets things go. But as fine and as small as our human ingenuity has been able to penetrate into the microscopic nature of the universe, we see design, we see order. We see a God who is a master craftsman, a careful sculptor who cares about details, who seems to also reveal himself in diversity and in color, in aesthetics. Um, and so this is what we're supposed to see. And science has the most amazing opportunity to show us all of these things. Um, I've been sharing the gospel with a guy that I met in a coffee house, and, um, and as we were talking about some of these truths about why do you believe in God and, and how there's more evidence for God than there is for not God, um, at one point he interrupted me and he said, wait, if there is a creator, then what does that mean about the meaning of life? Which is really the right question. Because there's all kinds of evidence stuff that I could show you that would promote the existence of a creator. Um, there's also a boatload of evidence that, um, that scientists can produce that would give you the conclusion that there's no need for a creator, right? Um, and the real question is, like, what is the story? If there is a creator, what's the story that the creation is telling? And I told him, well, it's designed not just to show you that there's evidence of a creator. The, the creation isn't just designed to give you evidence that there is a God out there, but the creation itself teaches us how you can have a relationship with God. There are things about what have been, what's been made where God speaks through creation. And so it's not just the size of the universe where God is saying, like, this is how big I am. Okay, that's true, but, but there's more to it than that. When you understand that God is this big and this powerful, what you can hear God saying is, I am strong enough to care for you. In the midst of the difficulties of your life, 
I am strong enough to hold on to you. I'm strong enough to come near to you. I am stronger than anything else that's going on in your life, and I am not letting you go. That's big. That's big. I mean, God teaches us that he, that he can fix things. God teaches us that he can give us his strength. And when we see the enormity of the strength that he has, when we see how tiny God's creation gets and how much order there is, even the, 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 in the smaller things that, are, that have been made, we think, wow, God doesn't just care about the big things in our lives, but he cares about the details. He's with us in the extraordinary highs and lows of life, but he is also right there with you in the ordinary, in your day-to-day, in the things that never change. God is there with his love and his faithfulness. And so these are things that we can learn about God. That God wants us to know him. He wants us to love him because he loves us. That he made the world glorious. God's glorious world has been deeply vandalized. And God, the creator, cares so much about the brokenness of the world that he has come to do something about it. Okay, we're going to talk about that a little bit more. Now, here, I just want to give you one example of where you can find somebody reflecting in this way on God as the creator. Okay, it's Psalm 8. I'm just going to share with you a few verses. Verse 3, the psalmist says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? I mean, in this we see there's a humility, right? When I see how big you are, God, when I see the gigantic enormity of who you are and your power displayed throughout the heavens, who am I? Like, I am this little tiny speck on a little tiny speck in the middle of a floating cloud of little tiny specks compared to you. And so there's this humility that the psalmist is inspired. He just can't believe that God cares. It's like, I'm so small, and yet you are mindful of me. Like, you care about me. And then he goes on, and he says in verse 5, he says, Yet you have made him, you've made mankind, a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. And so we see here that even though we're this small little speck on a small little speck in a cloud of small little specks, like, wait, wait, but God has actually given us a place of significant exaltation. God has made us just a little bit lower than the heavenly beings. Those are the angels. He's made us just a little bit lower, and he's crowned us with glory and honor. Like, like hear this. God's created design for us is that we would shine. God's design for us is that we would act and speak and relate to others in a way where other people would feel fuller when they're around us. 
that we would be able to do things that would lift people up, that would fill their sails, that would boost them, that we would actually have the strength and the ability and the intelligence to do meaningful work so that real things get accomplished, so that significant things happen, so that things are made, so that things are fixed, so that things run right. I mean, so this isn't just relational, although it is. It's also creative. I mean, this is that exercising of greater leadership, that we are exalted in God's image. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet. So we're to exercise incredible leadership on earth. And the psalmist ends by just saying, Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God, I cannot believe who you are. I cannot believe when I look at what you've made, when I see creation, I realize I'm tiny compared to you. I realize I'm exalted because of you. I've got meaning. I've got purpose. There is so much more in store for me in my life. Like, what am I doing? But this act of worship, when I come back to you and remember who you are, what you've made me to be, I begin to be changed. And so just to review the three things that God, he wants us to explore science so that we would know God better, exercise greater leadership, honor and thank God. This is what science is supposed to do. But we have a problem. (laughs) We have a problem, right? Because often science doesn't do these three things today. Uh, much of science has fallen into sin. And so we see God's design, but the reality is that science today has warped God's purposes for creation. I mean, in some ways, science really focuses exclusively on number two here in this list, right? Science seems to be designed so that people can know the world and make decisions about the world and and bring things out of the world and study the world so that we can make things, so that we can be happy, so that we can live long lives, so that we can make things other people would buy, so that we can become wealthy, right? And then to take care of all those things. Um, Numbers one and three are often suppressed by science. Um, One and three, and they're not merely ignored, Uh, but they're often mocked and ridiculed. Um, Scientists often make fun of the idea that creation teaches us to know God better, that it would prompt us to honor and to thank God. Um, Oftentimes, science says that that one in three in this list are childish, they're unverifiable, they're mythological, they're silly, and they're out of place in the scientific world. Most of the scientific world is actually based on the premise that we need to come up with an explanation for things absent, without the possibility of a God. And in this, when science does this, when scientists do this, they suppress the truth of God. Just a couple of examples. I mean, I think about, I mean, the big one is atheistic evolution. Okay, I'm not talking about evolution in general because there are all kinds of people who believe in God and believe in evolution. There are lots of Christians who believe in God and believe in evolution, but atheistic evolution believes that complex life arose from nothing. Um, I mean, I guess you had the Big Bang that exploded, but over millions of like mutations, over billions of years, life came from 
the Big Bang, um, all the way to what we have today without a creator, without any sort of intelligent designer. That's what atheistic evolution believes. Um, man, I, I, I'm hesitant to speak in some ways because I'm not doing a science lecture. I'm trying to preach a message about what the Bible says, but I don't want, and I don't want to come across sounding flippant about science. We have some really wonderful scientists here in our church family, um, and, and there is, I mean, I've already said how wonderful science is and how wonderful science can be, um, but, um, and I don't want to get into too much detail, but I actually think it takes more faith to, it takes more blind faith to believe in atheistic evolution than it does to believe that there's a creator. Um, and there's, there's different ways to do this. I was reading one article this week that said just to get human DNA would be the equivalent of winning the lottery, which doesn't happen. And you're thinking, wait, hold on, no, no, no that's, that's not true, actually. People do win the lottery. And I would say you're right, actually. Let me step back. That's not what the article said either. I, I just made that up. Um, <laughs> what the article said was that just to get human DNA, the probability that human DNA would evolve by chance without an intelligent designer would be like winning the lottery, um, not just once, um, not just twice, but twice in a row. Imagine that. And actually, it's, it's not just twice in a row. It's actually 3,000 times in a row. And that's just to get human DNA. So that doesn't account for where you get the stuff that makes up. I mean, it's, it's just in one small segment of the evolutionary process, the chances of that actually happening would be equivalent to you winning the lottery 3,000 times in a row. And even if you have billions of years to do that, it's, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Um, and so, and there are things in the evolutionary process, and it, this isn't just about the fact that we don't have like these linking fossils that show the transition and show the, the gradual mutations um, that we would really need to, to firmly rest on an atheistic evolutionary position. But when you think about, um, like even things like, I'll just throw this out, like even the transition from, asexual to sexual reproduction. Like, this is one that kind of boggles my own mind, and I try to wrap my mind around it, and I don't think science has a good answer for it, because it would take a thousand mutations to go from asexual to sexual reproduction. And you've got to have all those mutations, and the evolutionists themselves, they admit that it's a very tiny percentage of mutations that don't result in death but you've got to line up all of these mutations one after another, 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 in a way that these things don't end up dying in the process so that you can move from here to here, right? From reproducing yourself to having a mate. And it's not just this, but now actually you have to have two independent streams that are independent and yet dependent where one becomes a male, one becomes a female. And I'm just saying that I think it takes a heck of a lot of faith to believe that that happened. And I think it's a lot easier to just say, you know what, there was an intelligent designer. 
And whether that intelligent designer injected intelligence throughout the process of evolution or created everything in a radically different way, I think it takes, it's easier to believe that. It takes less faith actually to believe that than it does to believe that it all happened by chance. And so I'm hoping that this is the kind of thing that at least just starts conversations. I don't want to end conversations. But when I think about this, this is where science, I think, leads us, uh, it leads us astray. Um, one of the people, one of the scientists in our church that I talked with this week said, you know what, even besides all these evolutionary chain issues, where'd the stuff come from in the first place? Like, you still have to wrestle with that. And I do think, I've talked about this before, we did a series on, on just questions that deserve an answer, but the poetic nature of the description that scientists come up with for the Big Bang, because they don't understand it. And they're literally believing that this happened, and then they're trying to come up with explanations that would make sense if it actually happened. And for me, that is faith. <laughs> like, that's the definition of faith, that you believe something, and then you try to explain how it could have happened. And so, um, so yeah, so these are just, you know, these are, I think, from looking at the evidence, I think it takes more blind faith to believe in a godless evolution than it does to believe for that it is for a Christian to believe in the creator that the Bible presents. And yet, so why is it that so many people believe in evolution without God? Like, why is this the thing that's taught? I mean, a lot of us believe it because it's just the only thing that we've ever been exposed to, right? It's the only thing that anybody acts like rationally makes sense. Um, this is the only thing that's taught in most schools, right? And so why do so many people believe in evolution without God? Well, and I thought about that. I'm like, well, I think in some ways it's because not all scientists are Christian, right? Not all scientists actually want to bring God into the study of science. Uh, there's an incredible amount of work that can be done studying the creation, studying the world around us, and excluding God doesn't hinder a lot of that work, right? There are incredible non-Christian scientists who have done wonderful work in science. And we don't want to exclude brilliant people who can make valuable contributions to the world. Um, but, but what happens is, it's like we've got, they've got to come up with an explanation so that a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim or a Hindu or a Baha'i or an atheist could all engage in the scientific activity. And so they just exclude stuff that presupposes God or that believes that God is there. And what happens, though, is that when we exclude God from the equation, we are, whether we're doing it purposefully or accidentally, we end up, we end up suppressing the truth about him. We suppress the truth about him. This is what Paul is saying is the problem um, with humanity. We think we're smart, but then we believe the lie that there isn't a personal God overall, and that lie becomes dehumanizing. Okay, that lie makes us less human. Um, we tend to act more and more like the animals that we're said to have evolved from. And uh, we're going to talk more about this next week, but I just want to give you one example of this. Um, this is from my own biology class when I was a student at UCLA. 
uh, the professor was talking about evolution and reproduction. And he spent hours and hours and hours talking about how the main goal for the males in every species of life is to impregnate as many females as possible so that the maximum amount of his genes can make it into the next generation of offspring. Have you ever heard this? I mean, this is just biology 101. <clears throat> and I'm looking around the room at the guys that I know. I'm like, yeah, actually. <laughs> um, that's exactly what motivates and moves a heck of a lot of guys that I know. Um, one of the differences, though, is that they actually don't want to be responsible for the activity that they're doing, and they know that they're in a society that would hold them responsible, and so they try to keep them from getting pregnant. So the pregnancy piece is missing, but there's still that same dynamic of as much of my seed and as many of those ladies as I can possibly, that, like, that will give me life. That is what will cause me to, to feel like I have a good life that I will live on. Um, and so I asked the professor if this understanding of the evolution of, in the insect world, the animal world, had any implications for human reproductivity. And, uh, and he said, I don't think so. But then he asked the entire class to write a short essay on the subject, which is kind of interesting. So I, I, I mean, I did. But the, the, the point is that it seems clear to me that if we think that we are evolved animals and this is just what animals do to propagate their species, when we minimize the differences between human beings who are made in the image of God and crowned with glory and honor in ways that animals and other forms of life are not, then of course we're going to begin to act more and more like animals do. Um, of course, we're going to begin to think, I mean, and it's just natural, if there is no God, then no one can tell me what is right and what's wrong. And we live in a tension, right, because we actually have all kinds of things around us. We live in a community, we live in society. There are all kinds of ways that people tell us some things are wrong and some things are right. Um, and so we don't just completely do anything that, that our hearts desire, um, but this type of lie does have a dehumanizing force on us. We begin to think that God doesn't have a plan for your life to make you a life-giving force in the world. You tend to believe that there's no purpose for your life, that really you just wake up, you go to work, you come home, you eat, you drink, you have fun with your friends, and then you go to sleep, and then you do it all over again, right? That's, that's a, a relatively meaningless life compared to the desire and the design that God has for people who are made in his image. And I would say that when we see God's perspective on who we are, that is the fullest expression of what it means to be human. Like at that point, we are fully human. But it's, this de, it's these dehumanizing lies that are propagated by science, sometimes intentionally, sometimes not intentionally, that cause societies to drift, that cause societies to decay. Um, it's when it's contributed to by science that suppresses the truth of God. 
And so there are people that do this just by accident. They're just taught and they just continue in what they've been taught. And they don't question the science that they've been taught. There are other people, though, who are consciously trying to exclude God from the equation for other reasons. Like some people want to simply be free from being accountable to God. Some people don't want a God to be over them, to be telling them what to do. And so some people are motivated to promote atheistic science because they don't want God to be real. So you have a choice, either no God or no God that cares about the things that we do. Now the problem with this, right, the challenge of this is that we still see God everywhere we look. There are still things all over creation that shout out to us that God is real, that God cares, that he is powerful. Um, And this is the tension. This is the tension that we live in, where we have this sense that there is a God, and, and there's something in us that needs to worship. And we can see the evidence of God. It keeps peeking out. Even when we try to push it down, it keeps peeking out um, when we look at the world. Um, But ultimately, this becomes an issue of our our will and our desire because what we find is that we actually don't want the God that we see. For so many of us, we don't want the God that we see. And so this passage teaches us that God will respond. Eventually, God will respond to us by letting us go into our atheistic worldviews. God is holding on to us, but this passage teaches us that God's wrath is expressed in verse 24, that God gave them up. Like he's holding us back and he will let us go. He will let us go. And the question for us is, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do about our friends? What do we do about our, ourselves? Um, if you have been let go by God and you are living in things that, are, um, that aren't life-giving to yourself, if you are revolving the authority of your life around what you want and what you need, um, like what do we do? Well, I think before we do anything, the first thing we have to do is see what God has done. Okay, God does interrupt this story. God disrupts it because he always goes first. And so what we see is that the God who revealed himself in creation revealed himself most clearly in Jesus. Okay, that's the next slide. Might be two slides off, but uh, the, the God who has revealed himself in creation revealed himself most clearly in Jesus. So what did God do when we pushed the truth down? What did God do when we excluded him from the equation? God sent Jesus so that the invisible God would become even more visible to us. Jesus shows us that God is real as the creator, um, but that God is even more than that. I mean, God came so that we wouldn't be confused. And Jesus showed us that he was God the creator in his miracles. He had power over disease and sickness and death. He can multiply food and wine. He can calm the storms. Right? He is the God of creation. He has eternal power. But then Jesus also revealed God the redeemer in his death and his resurrection. We find that creation teaches us some things about God, but not enough. 
Um, for those of you who watch Stranger Things, I, I got this quote that I thought was really uh, very helpful. This is straight from Stranger Things, a science teacher. He said, science is neat, but not very forgiving. That was his comment when they were trying to figure out how do we undo what's been done. He's like, look, science, it's neat, but it's not very forgiving. And so what we see in Jesus is a God who transcends science, a God who can teach us that there's even more to the story than just creation. There's more to the story than just power. There's more to the story than just a God who is someone else and wholly other. What we see in Jesus is that there is also a God of love. There is a God of restoration. There is a God who fixes things. There is a God who forgives. Jesus came to interrupt our story. He came to fill the world with God's gracious and extravagant forgiveness. And to do this, he had to suffer for our sins. Right? This is what he did on the cross. And, and on the cross, Jesus was himself suppressed. Like I want you to think about this in this connection. Jesus was press-ganged into um, like into the, uh, into the torture that he endured and ultimately to the cross. People were denying who Jesus was. They were denying the God who was standing in front of them. And he was crucified as the Romans joined the Jewish leadership to suppress the truth about who he was. And they mocked Jesus. I mean, they mocked him as he, lay on, as he, as he hung on the cross. They mocked him with the sign that they put above him saying, this is the king of the Jews. And so Jesus, who was the way, the truth, and the life, was suppressed and crucified in death. He was crucified by their suppression of the truth, but also ours. Because God used their evil to punish Jesus for our sins. For every time that we have pressed the truth down, for every time we have ignored the truth or hidden the truth or wanted the truth just to go away, Jesus died for us. And in his resurrection, we see that Jesus is more than just the creator, but Jesus is the savior and the redeemer of all who believe in him. And so Jesus interrupts our story to save us from God's wrath. And so we see that Jesus reveals a God who saves us. And this is a God who never condemns what he hasn't himself endured. God never condemns what he hasn't himself endured. And so God's wrath is revealed against people who suppress the truth, but he himself has undergone his own wrath. He has taken the punishment on himself so that he can say to us, you're forgiven. And so Jesus saves us and he forgives us for suppressing the truth and for living a suppressed life. He interrupts our story to give us new life. And as he does this, he doesn't just forgive us, but he renews us. He opens our eyes to see the world in a brand new light. He works so that we'd be renewed people living and seeing God everywhere. Like this is where it leads. God wants you to see him everywhere. Everywhere. Um, and so how is this specifically, how, how do we get this to interrupt your story? Okay, like how are you going to walk in this? How do you take these truths and walk in them? 
I want to give you two things to interrupt your own story. First, don't let science exclude God from your life. Okay? You don't have to pick science or God. Okay? You can listen to what science says and you want to ask yourself the question, how does this reveal the truth about who God is? Maybe it teaches that God is incredibly patient and will accept incredibly tiny progress toward his intended goal. Right? That would be one way to see God in evolution if you want to believe in evolution. Um, but don't let science exclude God from your life. Realize that you can find God in all that science offers. Um, and then second, use science to see God as both creator and redeemer. In any expression of power, see the God who has eternal power. In anything that's inexplicable, even if it's inexplicable for now and some at some point in the future we'll find out an explanation for it, like all of that stuff is designed for us to realize that there is stuff out there that we will never understand because there is someone out there that we are just beginning to understand. And then you can see him as the redeemer Every time you see anything in life where something is being fixed, say, oh, you know what? This is what God does in Jesus. Every time you see somebody growing, say, oh, you know what? This is what our Savior does. He helps people to grow and to become more versions of what God designed them to be. So I want you to walk in this this week. Just ask God to start showing you where he is in the life that you're already living and see what happens. I mean, as you do this, I'm going to show you also then how to interrupt the story of others. How do you interrupt the story of other people? Share with them where you see God in creation. When you're talking about something, say, you know what? This actually reminds me of, of God in this way. And you can preface it by saying, look, I don't know where, you, where your faith journey is or what you believe about God, but I believe in God, and this shows me more of what he's like. Um, and then talk, too, about how you relate to him. So not just, oh, I see God in this way, but this is how God speaks to me. Like, his power reminds me that he's strong enough to hold on to me. Um, this act of regeneration where this thing is coming back to life reminds me of how God is at work, and he's helping me to grow and to fix the things that are broken in me. Um, and you just want to share that. Most of you aren't going to be able to prove to someone else that God exists but you can choose to see God's goodness. You can choose to see the gospel in science and you can share that with others. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for being a God who reveals himself in creation um, in so many ways. God, I feel like we're just scratching the surface. And so I pray that you would take what we've looked at today and, and help us to focus on seeing these verses coming true in the world around us. God, show us who you are. Help us to say, along with Jacob so, so long ago, truly the Lord was in this place and I didn't know it. Um, show us your power. Show us your grace as we look at the world around us through the lens of the gospel. And help us to share that with others so that others might see that there's another way that they can think about the world and the universe. It's a way that leads to you. Let me pray this in Jesus' name, amen.